Well, as was said, my name's Chris. Glad to be here with you this morning. Excited about this topic of prayer. And the reality is for many of us, for all of us, I would say, is when we don't know God, uh, it's really, really difficult to talk uh, to him. And we don't know what to say to him. We don't know how to approach him. And so this series on prayer, and I think what the Lord is teaching through uh, it, to his disciples here in the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, uh, is helpful to us. And as we get to know God uh, in a deeper way, uh, that changes our prayer life. And I think it changes the way we communicate with him. Yesterday, I, as Pastor Adam mentioned, I was at a uh, I had the opportunity to do the funeral yesterday, and then I was sitting, uh, I was one of the last ones to go down to the meal. There was a meal following, and uh, all the tables were taken, and there was a, a, a seat left with, uh, at a table where a guy was sitting by himself. Uh, he was an older gentleman, and uh, I went and sat down to, with him. I'd never met him before, and because I didn't know him, it made it intimidating for me to sit there with him, and then I had to ask all these questions, and I didn't feel comfortable. Like if I was sitting with a, a close friend or someone like that, I would know exactly what to say, and we could joke around, uh, but this was a very kind of sterile conversation because we were just feeling each other out and getting to know each other, and I think that this happens too in our relationship with God is when we don't know God, what do we say? How do we talk to him? And so we've been going through this series, and we started out in week one, and we said, listen, if you're going to approach God, you have to first meditate on who he is. Now, meditation is a word we don't like to throw around here in the Western culture, but it's important that we understand who he is, that we grasp the concept that God is this uh, awesome heavenly father who loves us and loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us and to meditate on his goodness and his greatness, which is a practice many of us probably, I'm going to guess, many of us skip over that and we just run into, all right, God, I know you're big and I know you can do all things, so do this for me or do that for me. Last week, Pastor Adam talked about the fact that he is our father. And that we can trust God as our Heavenly Father and that he wants good for us. And then this morning we're going to pick that up. Uh, So if you wouldn't mind uh, opening up uh, God's Word, we're going to dive right in this morning. um, Jump right into it and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you, that's fine. Uh, We have some in the pews there for you. Uh, The ones in the pews will be on page 803. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, don't own a Bible, please feel free to take that one with you. Uh, I would point out to you that if you are following along in these, this is our known journal. We put this out, I think, quarterly, and uh, we'll be on page 24 if you want to take notes in there. Uh, If you want to start doing a reading plan and you don't currently have one, you want to get into God's Word, get to know Him, that's the greatest way to get to know Him is by reading His Word. Uh, These journals are out there uh, to your right as you go out uh, the doors. Feel free to have one of those. So we're in Matthew Uh, chapter 6, verse 9, and this is the Lord Jesus here teaching his disciples to pray. His disciples, those, the the, the ones who were closest to him, obviously didn't know something about prayer, so they came to him and they asked him, and they said, Lord, will you teach us, teach us to pray? Because there's something here we're not understanding, we want to know more. And so he starts with this, he says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come soon, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going to stop right there. We're just going to deal with verses 9 and 10. And I want you to notice something here. Uh, Notice uh, these three petitions. You will find three petitions in this passage. May your name be kept holy. So when we're praying this, we're asking, God, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's Three petitions, and they all point in the same direction. And we put this emphasis here uh, on purpose. 
Notice this isn't my name be kept holy, my kingdom come, or my will be done. So when we approach God, it's important that we come to him with our hands wide open and saying, God, we want your name to be kept holy. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. This wasn't an accident. Okay? Matthew didn't write this down and come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, look how this worked out. Look, it, it, it kind of fits this way. Mayor, mayor, mayor. And I don't think Jesus was like, huh, look at that. It does. No, Jesus did this intentionally. And I think the reason he did this is because in the brilliance of who Jesus is, he understands that the human condition that we are all born with, every single one of us are born with this human condition that we think about ourselves more than we think about others. We're focused on us. We ask the question, What's in it for me? What, what's in it for me? Is this going to be comfortable for me? Am I going to enjoy this? Am I, am I going to like this? We ask that question all the time. And what Jesus is doing in his brilliance is he's saying, when you come to God in prayer, when you come to your father, you need to acclimate your heart to who he is. You're not asking just for what you want to be done. It doesn't say your or my kingdom. It says your kingdom. So we're asking for God's will to be done. So the focus here isn't on me, it's on him. Your, not my. Our focus in prayer should be centered around the Father's glory. When we go to God in prayer, our focus should not be on ourselves. It should not be on our own glory. It shouldn't be on us. It should be on him. That's the place we start. I'm not saying we can't go to him with our concerns, with all our anxieties. You'll see that throughout Scripture. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That is in the scriptures. God tells us we can pray that way. But we start in this place of saying, God, I am in surrender to you. Now, I would say to you, if you think about other people more than you think about yourself, when you're in a situation and you think, how's this going to impact others? Someone spent time with you training you that. That didn't come to you naturally. Someone spent a lot of time helping you focus and say, all right, consider how this is going to impact somebody else. As a father, God has blessed me with the opportunity to raise some children. And it is a blessing, but I will tell you, I'm going to be honest with you. I think it's funny when people say this. I wrote this in my notes. Like, I haven't been honest with you up until this point, but now I'm going to be honest with you, right? You ever hear half people say that? Let me be honest with you. So I've been lying up until now. That's not true, but... I thought it was appropriate to fit in there. but So when I'm being raw is what I want to say, not just honest, but raw, open with you. There are days where I grow extremely weary and tired of having the same conversations with my children over and over and over again. Share your things. Don't put your stuff above the relationships with your siblings, right? Think about others. Think about how this is going to impact them. But I have to keep doing it. I have to keep having that conversation. I will have that conversation a million times in my life because I have a lot of kids. And so I have to keep telling them and telling them and telling them and telling them. And so I've gotten a lot of practice at it. But I wonder if God doesn't feel the same way. I wonder if when God looks at us and we're coming to him and we're crying out with our hearts, saying, God, fix this, make this right, give me this. And if God doesn't, ah, it's not about you. It's not about you. The world doesn't revolve around you. It's not centered on you, and it's not spinning around you. And so when Jesus is teaching, 
his disciples to pray. The very beginning, he's saying, he's teaching his disciples to pray by turning their hearts towards God. If we're going to connect with God, we have to be able to surrender our hearts and say, God, this is about you. This is about your name being great. This is about your kingdom being established. This is about your will being done, not mine. And that takes surrender. To be able to do that, I have to be able to deny myself. He's telling us, son, daughter, you are part of my story. Now just align your heart with mine. Acknowledge me first. And I think that this is why the first uh, message in this series about meditating on God is so important because our hearts aren't ready we all, me included, we all come at first and we're like, God, this is, I come to prayer, why? Most of us are pressured. We have some kind of concern. It's a health concern. It's financial. It's a relationship concern. I'm concerned about this. And that's, our anxieties are what takes us to God. Those things in life that happen, those, those things that you can't predict, when they happen, they either push us away from God or they draw us closer to God. We run towards him or away from him. There's not really a neutral there. But what Jesus is teaching his disciples here is when those anxieties come, when you start in prayer, start with, all right, God, you're big enough to fix this. You're big enough to solve this. And even if you don't, you're still a great God, a good father. So what I want to do with you now, though, is... I want to break down these three petitions. I think it's important that we go through and kind of look at each one of these individually. So the first one we come to is, may your name be kept holy. May your name be kept holy. If you grew up in the church, it wasn't said that way probably. In the old King James, hallowed, anybody remember this? Hallowed be thy name. What in the world does that mean? In our English language, we don't use, I I have never seen hallowed used outside of the church. Haven't seen it used outside of probably Matthew chapter 6, if I'm being honest. So what in the world does hallowed mean? Well, the New Living Translation helps us a little bit by saying, may your name be kept holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be perfect, to be put in a place that is separate from everything else. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that Jesus, or the name of God, should be set apart. Now, in our culture, we struggle with this. We struggle with this because there are not many things that are sacred anymore. The name of God is sacred, but there's not many things that are sacred in our culture. Now, I would tell you, though, that I think every single one of you, us, me included, we have something that we do this with, that we set apart. For some of us, it's it's people. There are certain people in our lives that we put on a pedestal. We set them apart. They can do no wrong. Maybe it's a a son or a daughter. Maybe it's a a spouse. Maybe it's somebody else in your life. Maybe it's a celebrity. Oftentimes with celebrities we do this, right? We put them on a pedestal. They can do no wrong. And then all of a sudden they fall and we throw them in the garbage can and we find somebody else. We trash them. There are things that we do this with. The one I was picking on in the first service was cars. Cars. It's the one that I've, I, I see happen a lot. We, we, we celebrate a car. We, we put value on it that maybe it shouldn't, ha- shouldn't have. Like, don't, sit, or don't eat food in the car, right? Don't scratch the car. Don't get near the car. Don't put food in it. Maybe some of you grew up with that dad that was like, don't eat in the car. It wasn't my dad, but I've seen those, those families. Maybe you are that dad. Maybe I'm making you angry right now. You're sitting here thinking... 
We're talking about my car like that. We celebrate it. My uncle, I was just down at my, my grandparents' house for Christmas. My uncle has had a 1956 Ford pickup since he was 17 years old. So he's had it for like 35 years, something like that. And he said to me this, this year, he said, Chris, I'm, I'm just continue to work on it. Every year I want to upgrade something. I want to do something to it different. You know, and he's upgrading the motor and all the parts to it. And I'm like, wow. You know, I've been going down to that place for 30-some years. I've never taken a ride in that truck. Maybe because I was, you know, this punk kid that was going to get mess up something on the inside of it. But we hallow things. Maybe it's a TV. Maybe we upgrade our TV every two years. Maybe it's your cell phone. Whatever it is. But we, we put value on things. And these things seem silly. We laugh about And I am not in any way trying to make you feel guilty about having something that you want to take care of. Okay? That's not the point. It's not the point. There are, you can take care of things. You can keep them nice. That's okay. But I'm trying to help you understand here is what it means to hallow the name. To hallow the name of God. In the Jewish understanding, I had time, uh, my wife and I got to go to Israel for a couple weeks and study with a, a guy who's not Jewish, but he functions like a Jewish rabbi. He understands Judaism extremely well. And one of the things that he told us was to hallow the name means to add value. The Jewish understanding of making the name be holy is to add value to it. So the question that a Jewish person would ask is, am I adding or detracting from the name of God. Not in any way that you could add to his glory, right? Because he's already infinitely glorious. You can't add that way. But in your sphere of influence, the people that you're around, ask the question, am what I doing in my behavior, in the words that I'm saying, in the things that I'm doing, am I adding value to his name? Or am I detracting from it? The name of God is so sacred in the Jewish culture that they won't even utter his name. Yahweh, the name that he gave the Jews, they won't even say it because they don't want to mess it up. They actually came up with another word for God, Adonai, that they use instead because they won't even use his name. And you wonder, well, why is that so important? How in the, what in the world is that about? Well, God told them, sorry, I'm one slide behind here. Uh, God told them, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. That's in the Ten Commandments. The name of God is sacred, and we should keep it holy. There are times when my children will forget who they're talking to, and they will mouth off to either me or their mother. And my famous statement to them, I've said it a lot, is, who are you talking to? And they will stop. And oftentimes they'll say, I'm sorry, Dad, I shouldn't have talked to you that way. And it's not so much about me. It's not so much about my authority in the house. It's not so much about me having them, they're going to respect me. It's not so much about that, though I want them to respect me. It's about them understanding that there are people in authority who you should respect. And there are certain people you shouldn't talk to in a way that is disrespectful. And I think God is one of them. Steve Brown, he's an author, he says this. He says, if you have never stood before a God or before God and been terribly afraid, then you have never stood before God. The name of God and who God is should be revered. We should have an awe, a reverence for him. God is sacred, he's holy, he's set apart, and therefore his name is sacred. And as I said earlier, we struggle with this because in our culture, what is sacred? And I want to ask you this question. I want you to help me with this. 
You don't have to say it out loud, but think about it. If you think of something, come tell me afterwards because I would love to know. I was sitting with a, a, an older uh, saint in the Lord uh, this week. We were talking about this message, and I asked her this question. I said, what is sacred in our culture? What is kind of like universally sacred that we wrap our mind around? That's sacred. We couldn't come up with anything. We couldn't come up with anything in our culture that is sacred. And she said to me, you know, Chris, it's funny because in one generation, I think we've lost a lot of what was sacred. In one generation. She's one generation ahead of me. And she said, when I was growing up, when I was a little girl, the Sabbath day was sacred. That would be Sunday, she said. She said, on Sundays, that was a sacred day. We didn't work. We didn't go out uh, to restaurants. The, the stores weren't open. You know, it was, it was sacred. It was set apart for the Lord. She said, vows were sacred. When you made a vow to somebody that you were going to do something, a commitment, you kept it. She said, life. We talk about sanctity of human life Sunday. She said, life was sacred 35 years ago. Marriage was sacred. And then she said one that I was surprised by, one that I didn't even think about. or I mean, the ones she said before I understood, but this one I was like, wow, never thought about it that way. She said, Chris, you know, when I was a little girl, the Bible itself was sacred. She said, the physical Bible, she said, you wouldn't walk into a room and set this on the floor. Because it would be disrespectful. You would set it on a table or somewhere else. But you, and I thought about all the years of, that I was a youth pastor. You know, I would be busy with students and doing things. And my Bible, I've, I've had probably 10 of these in the last 10 years. Because I wear them out so much. Especially when I was in youth ministry. I would just, you know, I'd throw it on the floor. I'd be going to do something else. And, I, and she said, you know, you would never have done that when I was a little girl. Because the Bible itself was sacred. So I asked you this, what is sacred in our culture? I feel like everyone decides what is sacred for themselves, but we don't have anything that's universally sacred. And so it's hard for us when we say, keep the name holy or hallow the name. It's hard for us to understand that because his name should be universally sacred, but not so much in our culture anymore. So when I pray, I want to keep the name holy. I want to exalt God's name. One thing I want you to consider there's a passage comes out in 1 Peter that talks about this. If I can get my, there we go. However, if you suffer as a Christian, so if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a Christian. You say, I put my faith in him. You are a believer. You are a Christian. You get this label. Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that. Come on. Wake up. Yeah, there we go. Name. Praise God that you wear that name or that you bear that name. Praise God that you bear the name of Christ. That name is far more important than anything else on earth, and it's more important than your own name. I was watching football with my kids. I was watching the Penn State game in the Rose Bowl, and one of my children looked at me and said, Hey, Dad, why does Penn State not have the names on the back of their jersey? I love that question. Because I said, the name on the front of the jersey is way more important than the name on the back of the jersey. When I see these guys in the NFL today and they score a touchdown, they go like this, right? What are they doing? They're pointing at their name. They're exalting themselves. They're saying, I'm important. They forget about the 10 other guys that helped them get there, right? But brother and sister, listen, if you are a follower of Jesus, the name that you bear as a Christian is way more important than the name that your mom and dad gave you when you were born. 
That name is important. It's to be kept holy. So give credit to God. Remember, this is not about you. The name that he has given you is far greater than the one that your mom and dad gave you. All right, we need to keep moving. So let's move into the kingdom. So your name be kept holy, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Well, what does this mean? What is Jesus referring to here? Well, I want to put this in language that I think we'll understand. Uh, you get the idea of a king and kingship and being under a ki- in a kingdom, right? We live in the United States of America. We're not necessarily a kingdom, but uh, if you think uh, back to the Renaissance time or when there was kings and queens, and they would have a king would have a kingdom, and his, his dominion was where his will would be done. The kingdom is wherever the king's will is done. And what is happening here on earth is there are places where there's rebellion against God. There's a rebellion against him. There's a rebellion to say, we don't want to follow you. We don't want to be part of you. We don't want you to be our king. We don't even acknowledge you exist. But God's kingdom is where his will is done. God's kingdom is where his will is done. And in heaven, God's will is always done. God's will is always done in heaven. I want to give you a verse. And this should be our heart. When we're praying, your kingdom come, this should be our desire as believers. Revelation chapter 21. This is speaking about God's kingdom. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain, and all these things are gone forever. In heaven, God's will is always done, and that should be our longing. We should long to be in a place where there's no more sin, no rebellion, no death, no deformity. And earth, in Romans, the book of Romans, Paul says that earth groans. It groans for it to be restored, that God would be in his rightful place as king again. And so what we're praying is, Lord Jesus, come soon and establish your kingdom. Eradicate these things like racism and sexism and slavery. Get rid of it. Eradicate it because it's not part of your kingdom. And I think the Jews in Jesus' day, I want to point something out to you. I think the Jews in Jesus' day understood this better than we do. They got this. They really grasp this because the Old Testament speaks about Jesus coming to establish, well, the Messiah, I shouldn't say Jesus, Messiah coming to establish his kingdom. In the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 10, all right, see if my clicker will do it. There we go. Psalm 10, verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. The godless nations will vanish from the land. So the Lord is king forever and ever. The Jews understood this, that his kingdom would reign forever. This is a verse we talk about in, uh, around Christmas time. We just came out of this, Isaiah chapter 9, where Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah, the one who is to come. And it says, for us, a child is born, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. What does that mean? Authority will rest on the shoulders of this one who is to come. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The Christians should long for this. The Jews long for this. They want this this rule of peace and fairness and justice. And the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. 
The Jews were looking for this. They remembered back to when they were taken out of Egypt, when God came and rescued them from the slavery that they were in in Egypt, and he took them out. This is what he said to them in Exodus chapter 19. And he said, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. He's saying you will be a kingdom of priests. And so the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, they were looking for this. Is this Messiah going to come? Is he going to establish this kingdom of peace and justice and fairness? And in John, John records an incident that happens with the people, the Jews, that I think point to this. They were looking for him to come. When the people saw this, now, now to give you the context here, he had just performed a miracle. He had fed 5,000 men, and we don't know how many women and children because the author doesn't record it, but 5,000 men, and then in addition, there were women and children there, and he feeds them. He cares for them. And then this is what happens, and the people saw him do this miraculous sign, and they exclaimed, surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their what? King. They were ready to force him to be the king, He slipped away into the hills by himself because he knew that it wasn't his time yet. They understood correctly. They knew that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to establish his kingdom, but they were missing the timeline. They missed that he had to come and suffer first. Because what do we look forward to, right? We look forward to his kingdom coming. We're still praying for that. And God's telling us, be patient. Be patient. Not yet. There's more that need to come into the kingdom. There's more that need to repent of their sins. There's more. And Peter, he says that God's patience, he's, he's slow, and it's not because he's slow in coming, but it's because of his patience, because he wants all to come to repentance. So they understood this. They just missed the timeline. They were ready to make him king then. Peter is a guy that we kind of... He's one of the disciples that we can make fun of a lot. We kind of get on him about being a blockhead sometimes. He kind of does things kind of out in front, doesn't think about it, just says things. Maybe you have one of those living in your house. Uh, But Peter's kind of a guy that we knock on in the Christian circles sometimes. Uh, But one of the things that we have gotten on him about at times is this incident that he had with Jesus when he tries to reprimand Jesus, which I think is it's amazing to me. It's mind-boggling. If you were standing with someone who you called Lord, Messiah, the one who was to come, right? If he was your Lord and Savior, and would you reprimand him? Would you tell him, ah, Jesus, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, that's what Peter does. But the reason is because he was looking for this kingdom to be established. So let me share this event with you. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. So he has to tell the disciples, he's telling them plainly, listen, guys, I have to die first. I have to go and suffer first. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him saying such things, for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord. Right, God, heaven forbid you would do that. Don't give yourself up. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. 
Remember that when we pray. We oftentimes see things from a human point of view and not God's. Peter understood. He understood that Jesus was the king. He just missed the timeline. He just didn't understand that Jesus had to die first and give himself up and that he would be coming again. And that's the coming again is what we're looking to, for Jesus to come again. And so when we pray, will your kingdom come? Come soon. We're asking him to come and establish his kingdom here on earth. Now the question you have to ask yourself, because all that sounds good, but are you genuinely willing, genuinely willing, to submit yourself to the authority of the king, to the code of the kingdom? Because there's things that we have to leave behind. There's things that don't glorify the king. There's things that aren't establishing and building up his kingdom. There's sin in our lives that we have to repent of. Because the code of the kingdom is to love your neighbor as yourself. The code in his kingdom is that we would forgive one another as we have been forgiven. The code in his kingdom is that we would keep his name holy. That we would flee from the youthful lusts, whatever those be in your life, that have hindered you. We would flee from them. We would repent of them. We would turn from them. That's the code in the kingdom. So can I live according to that code? And see, when I pray this prayer, Lord, your kingdom come, it's going to start to expose some idols in my heart, some things that, man, they have a place that they shouldn't have. Are there things that I can leave behind? The love of money, possessions, status, maybe specific sins. Maybe I'm sleeping with somebody who's my spouse. Maybe I'm struggling with drunkenness or pornography. Whatever it is, those, those aren't part of the kingdom. Those aren't help establishing his kingdom and his reign. And you can ask yourself, what place do these have in the kingdom? They don't. If we're practicing sin regularly, then we're not representing God's kingdom. Brian Chappelle makes a, he makes kind of a funny statement, but it's true. And I think some of us need to really pay attention to this. He says, prayer will not make an unbiblical choice godly any more than sugar will make liver into candy. Right? Prayer will not make an ungodly choice If you're praying about something that you feel in your life is justified and it's okay, but God says, this is sin, repent of it, then your prayer to change that, you're not going to change who God is. You're not going to change his character. You're not going to change his will. You're not going to change his holiness. You can't change that. And so maybe we stand outside the gate to this kingdom and we say, "I I can't live up to that code. We stand outside the gate of the kingdom and we say, God, I want to be a part of that kingdom where there's no more suffering or pain, but I can't, I can't do it on my own. And Jesus says, I know. That's why I died, so that you might have the opportunity to be in my kingdom. And so now what he asks us to do is humble ourselves, repent of our sins. So if you're standing there and you're saying, I know I struggle with this, God, repent. That's the beauty of the kingdom of God is all we have to do is humble ourselves and repent and he will forgive us. He's quick to forgive us. And we get to be, have a clean slate. We get to be part of that kingdom. Not because of the work we did. Not because of the things we've done. But because of who he is. Because his name is holy. His kingdom is beautiful. His character is flawless. I don't think we need to make doing kingdom work harder than what it really is. We should be about doing the work of the kingdom. And doing the work of the kingdom is simply living in joy, in the joy of the salvation that you have. Being kind to others, being gentle to others, 
gracious and merciful as God has been gracious and merciful to you. Sometimes I think we try to make it harder than what it is. All right, well, we've got to close out. And so we move to the last one. Your will be done. I was talking again with this same person about this part of the message, and she said, you know, the, the your will be done part of this prayer is the hardest part out of all of it. Because what happens when God's will is that we would actually suffer? What happens when God's will is that that bad things happen to us, the cancer comes, that disease, that illness, and it seems like God doesn't remove it. What, what do we do then? The scriptures point to some of these things. We don't have time to get into all of it, but the scriptures point to this. But it was the Lord's good plan in Isaiah. The Lord's good plan to crush him. Who's him? It's Jesus. And it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Which one of us would want to put our name in there? It was the Lord's good plan to crush Chris and cause him grief. But what if that's his plan for my life? Can I still glorify him? Because yet when his life was made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants, he will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. 1 Peter chapter 4 goes into this as well. So then, those who suffer according to God's will. Wait a second, did I just say that? Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It's a difficult concept for us to grasp. It's difficult for us to wrap our heads around this. But remember what I said in the beginning. This is not about you. And this world, this earth is not your home. You are pleading with God saying, God, your kingdom come. I want to be part of your kingdom. I want to be in your kingdom. I want your rule and reign where you eradicate all those things. The suffering, the grief, the pain, the heartache. All of that is gone. So for a time, I may need to live in pain and suffering because the, the, the kingdom is not here yet. We're asking for it to come. We're asking for it to come. And we might say, well, why does God allow these things to happen? What is it about? I don't think that it means, I don't think suffering at all points to the lack of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things. What I think suffering points to, first, is sin. The fact that sin has entered into the world. The fact that rebellion is here against God. But bigger than that, I think it means that he's given us free will and he allows us to choose And so often we choose our kingdom rather than his kingdom. We choose our desires rather than his. As a Christ follower, we should long for heaven. We should long for his kingdom, his will to be done. We should surrender to his will, praising God, knowing that he is going to make all things right, as Revelation says. He's going to make all things new. I know that if I suffer in this life for his glory, that I will spend an eternity with him praising his name and there will be no more suffering and pain in that place. Last thing I'll say about suffering is one of the greatest testimonies I have ever seen is those who are able in the midst of suffering and heartache to praise the God in heaven because the outside world has no context for that. When you are suffering and you're in pain and you can praise God and you have peace in your heart, the outside world looks at that and says, where does that come from? How is that possible? You're in the midst of pain and you have peace. You're in the midst of pain, but you have joy. And it's because our joy is an eternal thing. It's a not of this world thing. 
It's who God is. It's part of his kingdom and his glory. So my friends, as we pray, as we go to God in prayer, I pray that we would trust him. I pray that we would know who he is. I would pray that we would know who we are, that we are his, and that we can come to him in anything. And as we pray, may our prayers be acclimated towards his will and not ours. May we surrender and truly, as Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We thank you that you are establishing your kingdom. We ask that your kingdom would come soon, Lord Jesus. Jesus, we know that it will not, you will not return a day before all that have been added to your number are added. So, Father, I pray that people would repent of sin. I pray that they would see the beauty of Jesus. I pray that they would turn to you and find your mercy and your grace. Father, help us in the midst of suffering. No doubt we live in a broken world with brokenness and hurt and heartache. And some of the suffering we've caused ourselves by our own sin and some of the suffering we didn't ask for, invite, or do anything to cause, and it just came. God, be gracious to us in that. Give us peace. Give us the ability to praise your name even in the midst of heartache and pain. And I pray these things in the great and holy name of Jesus. Amen.